We turn our Bibles to Song of Solomon, chapter 7. We read God's word from the Song of Solomon, chapter 7. How beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O prince's daughter! The joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. Thy navel is like a round goblet, which wanteth not liquor. Thy belly is like an heap of wheat set about with lilies. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. Thy neck is as a tower of ivory, thine eyes like the fish pools in Heshbon by the gate of Beth Rabim. Thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. Thine head upon thee is like caramel, and the hair of thine head like purple. The king is held in the galleries. How fair and how pleasant art thou, O love, for delights. This thy stature is like to a palm tree, and thy breasts to clusters of grapes. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of the boughs thereof. Now also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine, and the smell of thy nose like apples, and the roof of thy mouth like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give thee my loves. The mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take verse 10 as our text this morning. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Solomon opens this chapter with a beautiful description of his wife. This is the word of Solomon regarding the Shulamite. And we have in the first nine verses, the Solomon speaking. In verses 10 and following, The subject turns to the Shulamite, who now responds to her husband. Solomon is moved with love toward his wife, and he describes her beauty here in elaborate terms. We're inclined to smirk, we're inclined to laugh when we read this description, but it's not intended to be erotic, it's not intended to be funny. This is a description of an intimate, holy, pure union between a husband and a wife. But we all know there's more here. This is the word of Christ to his bride, the church. The love of Christ for his church is an intimate, passionate love. It's a love that involves union and communion and sweet fellowship. Christ views his church as the object of his deepest desire. And the bride confesses that wonder here. She knows herself to be the object of that desire. We have as our text the response of the bride now to her husband. 
She's able to respond in no uncertain terms. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. This is your and my confession this morning by God's grace. After having examined ourselves, knowing our own sinfulness and unworthiness, we come into the presence of God with this confession by faith. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. We belong to Christ and we confess the wonder of his love for us. We take that as our text, the desire of my beloved toward me. Noting the bond, the desire, and the joy. I am my beloved's. After a week of self-examination, we gather with this glorious confession on our lips. We know our sin. We know the sorrow that is ours as a result of that sin. We've been humbled by the knowledge and reality of that sin in this past week. And we know, I've not resisted temptation as I ought. I've not guarded my eyes, my heart, as I should. I've not been open to rebuke as I ought. We confess that we are sinners and we deserve everlastingly to perish in hell. But Christ doesn't leave us in that doom. He doesn't leave us with that gloom with regard to our sin. Christ doesn't leave us either in a situation of uncertainty. Christ works in us a sorrow for that sin and a knowledge that those sins are forgiven. Christ works in us the wonder, I have peace, peace with God. And knowing that my sins are forgiven, knowing that I have peace with God, I know then that God will not hold those sins against me. He's forgiven me fully, completely. And there's no sin that he remembers. He casts them off from the ones that are more gross to the ones that are seemingly minor. He's cast them off from the ones that are more public to the others that are more private. He's cast them off. Jesus Christ laid his life down for those sins. And God works in us then the joyful confession, I am Christ's. Apart from belonging to Christ, there's no hope. If one doesn't belong to Christ, that one is doomed to all eternity. But confessing our sins, repenting of them, we cling to Jesus Christ this morning. And confessing the deceitfulness of our natures, we desire to know our sin. We desire to confess it. And we say, I am my beloved's. Now there are those who consider it a spiritual gift not to know the certainty of salvation. Who view it as proud to say that I believe that I am saved and I'm assured of that salvation. They stand contrary to our text this morning. Christ does not leave his bride in uncertainty. Christ works the assurance of salvation in the hearts and lives of his children. And the bride, though she loses for a time that assurance, and we saw that in the Song of Solomon, there was a time where in her sinfulness, she was not living in the consciousness of the joy and the wonder of the love 
of her husband. We know that experience ourselves. There are times when we walk in sin. We pursue those ways of sin. We don't confess it. We don't repent. And there's shame. There's guilt. But God works repentance. God works sorrow. And Jesus Christ does not hold our sins against us. Jesus doesn't keep reminding us of those sins. He doesn't keep beating us over the head with those sins that we've committed in the past. He doesn't try to keep us humble and submissive by constantly reminding us that we are sinners. He's gracious. He's merciful. He goes forward telling his beloved how precious she is to him. A godly husband follows the example of Jesus Christ in that regard. He tells his wife of his love for her. He assures her of that love. And her response is that of joy, that of certainty. He doesn't leave his wife wondering and questioning whether he loves her, whether he cares about her. He doesn't leave his wife questioning his commitment to her. He regularly assures her of his love for her, his certainty with regard to that union and his commitment to her. And that gives joy. That gives delight in the bond of marriage. There are no fears, no doubts, no worries. They're dispelled. There's no reason for jealousy. Such as dispelled. I know where I stand with my husband. I am his. I am my beloved's. Solomon affirms in the first verses the beauty of his bride. And as he works through that, he sets forth that she is the object of his desires. She's a living, breathing, awe-inspiring piece of God's handiwork. And as such, he expresses the wonder of her beauty, describing her from, interestingly, the soles of her feet to the top of her head. In previous descriptions, he started from her head and worked his way down. Here he begins with her feet and works his way up. There's joy in the sexual intimacy within marriage. But the sexual relationship, as wonderful as it is, is not enough. More is needed. And that which is needed is the wonder of being loved. The wonder of knowing and believing that I belong. I belong to Him. And He is mine. And that's what we see here being expressed. In this description, Solomon is setting forth the beauty and the perfection of his wife. As he compliments her, he points to the marvel of God's handiwork in fashioning this beautiful woman for him. He even makes use of some military language describing the dignity, the strength that God has given to her. But it's not enough to describe that beauty. And that comes out in verse 8 then. He wants to act on it. And he expresses now a transition to wanting to touch, wanting to delight in her pleasure. He tells his wife of her beauty, of his love for her, of his desires toward her. And the response is that of certainty. She doesn't roll her eyes and question his motives, as some might be inclined to do. She knows her body lacks the perfection that he attributes to it. She knows herself to be a sinner. 
don't assume just because you don't fill the cultural standard of beauty that you're not attractive to your spouse. In God's providence, God brings men and women together and he attracts them one to another. And the Christian husband, the Christian wife looks beyond even the physical beauty and sees the heart that God has given to that one whom they rejoice in and delight in. A heart that's lovely, a heart that's Christ-like and reflects the wonder of God's love. And so the bride rejoices in the advances of her husband. And she confesses now in verse 10, I am yours. What is important is not what she thinks about herself and what she thinks about her body. What's important is what her husband thinks and what her husband says. And she now hears her husband. And she now knows the love of her husband and lives in the consciousness of it. This gives joy. This gives delight in marriage. Again, the fears, the doubts, the worries are dispelled. There's no reason for jealousy. I know where I stand with my spouse. I am my beloved's. The joy, the excitement then is found in the position that she occupies. She belongs to him. And therein is her joy and her delight. She finds joy in that union with her beloved. What gives her reason to live, what gives her purpose in life, is I am my beloved's. And she submits to him wholeheartedly. Beloved, that's our triumph this morning. I am my beloved's. In him is all my boasting. In him is all my confidence. We're entirely devoted to him. He owns me. He bought me with the price of his own blood. And he's Lord of my life. We don't chafe under that lordship. We rejoice in it. And by faith, we lay hold upon that wonder. Now we know our sin. We know our unworthiness. We blush when we hear what he says about us because we know that it's not true. I know who I am of myself. My conscience rises up and smites me. I know my sinfulness. I know my unworthiness. But what matters is not what I think about myself. It's what Christ thinks about me. Jesus Christ looks at you and he looks at me and he says, you're precious in my sight. He sees us as his beloved in whom he rejoices. We sometimes wonder, what does he see in me? And no doubt the Shulamite at times thought that about Solomon. What does he see in me? How can he overlook all these imperfections? Beloved, that's the wonder of grace. I am beautiful to him. And this is the truth that liberates the child of God. Frees him or her from bondage and despair. This is the truth that moves us to seek him and to love him and to pursue him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to rejoice in him. We count it a joy to seek him and to serve him and to love him. He bought us with the price of his own blood. He looked upon us when we were yet in our blood, sinners in which there was found nothing that was attractive. And in love, he restored us. In love, 
He took us to be His own, washing us, cleansing us, working by His Spirit within us. And He laid His life down in our place. So that my value, your value and worth is not found in what I've accomplished, what I've performed, the status and circumstance of my life. My value and worth is found in the wonder of God's work of grace in me. I am my beloved's. And she doesn't rebel against the fact that her husband is her head and that she's called to submit to him and confess him as the one who is that head. She doesn't chafe under this role. Rather, in this role, she finds delight. In this role, there is joy. The world would say, she's a slave if she confesses her husband as Lord. If she's willing to submit to him, that's travesty. The Christian woman says, no, that's not slavery. That's my, that's my delight. I belong to him. I'm his wife. And I will be his wife according to God's sovereign will. And I don't desire anything else. The world says, why would you follow Christ? Why would you submit to the will of Christ? Look at the sacrifices that are required. And the child of God responds, there is nothing I would desire more. This is my delight. His desire is toward me. And so expanding on that, not only I am my beloved's, but his desire is toward me. We look at that secondly. What does she mean here? This is not merely a reference to lustful desire. The idea here is that her husband desires to promote his wife. His desire is a desire of love by which he shows love and devotion to his wife and seeks her highest good. The Hebrew word for love has as its main point ardent desire. Now it's interesting, this is the third place that this Hebrew word for desire is found in the Old Testament. The first two are both found in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 3.16, when we have the curse of the woman, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Then again we have in chapter 4, verse 7, God's word to Cain, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire and thou shalt rule over him. Now the desire here of our text in the Song of Solomon is different from either of those instances. It's not a desire which involves conflict with sin or where one's own will is in contrast to another. This is a desire in which the wife rejoices and it's a desire that causes great joy. The Song of Solomon presents that desire in the realm of the sexual relationship, but broader. The sexual relationship is set forth here in a very intimate way as that which is precious within the bond of marriage. And the sexual bond is too precious to be wasted with anyone other than your spouse. God ordained that special intimate relationship within the bond of marriage. Marital intimacy and for the purpose of bringing forth children according to his good pleasure. Now we ask, if the sexual relationship is so special, does that mean then that single individuals 
are living a second-class life and that they're missing out. The text teaches and emphasizes the wisdom of waiting until marriage for the sexual relationship. There are things that are worth waiting for, and this is one of them. And there are consequences when one fails to wait. But remember that the most fulfilled man that ever lived was Jesus Christ. And he was single. He never enjoyed the sexual relationship. It's not as though someone who is single is deficient, is incomplete without marriage, nor that they cannot have meaningful, intimate, profound relationships with others who are single or married. We know that God designs us, whether single or married, to live in community with one another within his church, where we love and we serve one another in profound and deep ways, ways that involve joy and intimacy. But as precious and beautiful as a sexual bond is, there's something more here, as we well know. Sin corrupts even the sexual intimacy within a marriage. Our spouse doesn't satisfy as we would desire. Sometimes we desire to be loved by someone who would long for us with more powerful urges and desires. In time, we find that the sexual intimacy begins to not be as possible as we become older. God points us through all of this to the reality of which that sexual intimacy is but a picture. The sexual relationship in marriage, as beautiful as it is, is not enough. It's not sufficient. We need a better husband who loves us with a perfect love in whom we will delight to all eternity. And it directs us to the intimacy and the wonder of our union with Christ. The desire of Jesus Christ is to take his bride and to bring her into the highest bliss that she could ever enjoy in heavenly wonder. And the desire of Jesus Christ then is to bring those who are the objects of his love into the enjoyment of that salvation he's earned for them. Jesus gave himself for the sake of his sheep, his people. And the purpose of that sacrifice was not only to redeem and deliver them from sin, but to take them now and to bring them into the most intimate, wondrous union with him to all eternity that they will enjoy. In that sacrifice, we know the desire of Jesus Christ toward us. We know the love that he has for me personally. And we know that love not just in an intellectual way. We know that love in a powerful way. A way that affects us to the core of our existence. Christ desires me. His desire is toward me to bring me to the highest bliss I would ever enjoy in heavenly glory. And I know that right now, he's looking upon me in love. And he's guiding every aspect of my life in perfect love for my good and with a view to entering into that intimate joy. And I know he's faithful. And I have no question with regard to his relationship to me. And though I struggle sometimes with his providence and the way in which he deals with me, I believe that his desire is toward me. That's the beautiful confession. Not only am I my beloved's, but his desire is toward me. 
And that works in us, a response of love. The desire of Christ toward me is so powerful that it works a response. We live in the enjoyment. We confess the wonder of it. Now there are not, we're not always living in the enjoyment of that union and that desire. And we confess it. And we know the fault is mine. It's because I'm not praying like I ought. I'm not in the word like I should. I'm walking in unrepentant sin and I'm not following after His will as I should. I'm not walking as close to Him as I ought. Christ works a knowledge of the wonder of this union and this desire in order to move us to repentance, to draw us to Himself. And again, that's the striking theme that runs through the book of the Song of Solomon. The bride is not left on the back burner. The bride is never left wondering about the love of her husband. The love of Christ is so powerful, so marvelous, that it draws the bride to himself and works in her a knowledge of the experience and wonder of his love and his faithfulness. So that the bride says, his desire is toward me. Now that desire is the desire of true love. A love that cannot be bought. A love that can only be given. It's important that we make that distinction. Because the Bible uses at least three different words for love. There is that desire which is eros love. From which we get the word erotica. You can buy that kind of love on the streets. In the massage parlors. That's the love of prostitution. That's not true love that gives. Then there's the desire that can be explained as phileo love, from that word. And that too is a love, a companionship that in a sense you can buy. Men can hire a woman or a woman could hire a man perhaps to be a certain kind of a companion to them, even though not in a sexual way. Especially one finds that in some cultures, the Japanese, for instance, have this sinful practice where men will have their own wives to satisfy their sexual desires but then they spend time with another woman in order to have conversations to go out to eat to spend time with interests and they call them the geisha girls cultured educated so that they can spend time with conversation that's not what christ here is talking about the desire of christ is an agape love It's a love which cannot be bought. We see many pictures of this kind of love in our day and age, and even within the church. This is the love that you see in a dear Christian man, a dear Christian woman, who as they get older, yet are committed to caring one for another in the realm of marriage. And it may be that the one lands in a nursing home and perhaps even becomes very, very confused, even becomes very mean toward that spouse. And yet that spouse is visiting daily, spending time with that one. And it may be that someone walks up to that man, that woman, and says, why do you do this? Why do you come every day to visit this one when this person just mean, don't even remember you, doesn't even know who you are? And someone might say, I'll give you a million dollars just to walk out. Walk out, start a new life, don't worry about this situation any longer. And that person would say, no, I won't. I won't do it. I'm committed to this one. And I will do it for God's sake. 
Beloved, that's the wonder of this agape love. It's a love that gives. A love that gives and gives as a result and wonder of the love of Christ in our hearts. A bond that unites us till death separates us. That's the love that Christ has for you and for me. The devil would tempt Jesus as someone might come to that man, that woman, and say, just walk away. The devil would tempt Jesus to say, why are you putting up with those people? Look at how they treat you. Look at how they act. They say sorry, but then they go right back into their sin. And someone might say to Jesus, Jesus, just cast them off. Walk away from them. Go find someone else. Look at how unthankful, look at how unloving they are. And the devil would say to Jesus, just walk away from them. And what is Jesus' response to the devil? No! My desire is toward them. They are the objects of my love. And I will keep giving of myself for them until I bring them to the fullness of the perfection that will be ours in glory. And the saints, with joy, respond, confessing the knowledge of that love. I know that I have a Savior who will not walk away from me. He will not turn His back on me. His desire is toward me. And His desire is such that He will preserve and keep me now and to all eternity. Beloved, within that experience of love, there is joy. There is unspeakable joy. And that's expressed here, the joy of the bride. That's the sense of the next verses where we have the bride now responding to her bridegroom. At first the husband is taking the lead. But now more and more the husband gives to the wife that. So that she now says, Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. She takes the initiative now, suggesting activities. The desire of the husband toward his wife is not a desire that would demean her. It's not a desire that would demote her. On the contrary, this is a desire that promotes his wife. This is a desire that gives joy to his wife. This is a desire that gives his wife freedom. The husband doesn't say, I'm the boss. I'm going to keep you in your place. I'm going to limit you. No, he loves his wife. And she experiences that love and willingly submits to her husband. And in that, her husband promotes her well-being, seeks her good. And she lives in the freedom and enjoyment of that love. That's the church. A church. As a church of Jesus Christ, we live in the wonder of the freedom that is ours in Him. Christ broke the bondage to sin and death. He broke my bondage to self and to love for self. And the marvelous love of God is such that He works in me in knowledge of that. I'm forgiven. And He makes me love Him with joy and with excitement. So that my life is centered around this one who will never leave me or forsake me. I am his and his desire is toward me. He gives us bread and wine this morning. The wine being a picture of that joy, that blessedness. Now there are many things that we can say about our life in the midst of this world. There are disappointments. There are constant struggles with sin. Every day we face new temptations. We struggle sometimes to make a living. We struggle to pay tuition and to 
pay for the responsibilities that God sets before us. There's so much shame, so much guilt sometimes with regard to sin, especially sexual sins. We know how often our thoughts tend toward lust and desire. The struggles with pornography, the struggles with premarital sex, with adultery. We bring our sins before the foot of the cross. And we lay them there. And we confess that God nailed all of our sins to the cross. Along with the sins of the Samaritan woman. Who was on her fifth husband. And knew that that man wasn't really her husband. Along with the woman who was caught in adultery. In John chapter 8. Along with the notorious woman who was a sinner. Who comes and wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. Jesus doesn't shame these women. He expresses His desire of love toward them. My desire is toward you. And we hear, beloved, the beautiful words as we come in the knowledge and awareness of our sin. It is finished. The price has been paid. My desire is toward you. So that in the struggles, in the sorrows, as our conscience smites us, as we go through life and deal with our sin and with temptation, the one truth that stands out is this. Jesus Christ loves me with a perfect love. And He will bring me to the fullness of glory. He delights in me so that He will take me as His bride and He will delight in me. He wraps me in the wonder of His beauty and astonishes me with the joy and the wonder of His grace. And more amazingly, He's going to spend an eternity delighting in me, His bride. How can that be? Rejoicing in the holiness, the righteousness that He created in you and me, and that He worked in us by the wonder of His grace, rejoicing forever in His bride, clothed with fine linen, shining like the sun, saying, Come, my beloved, my perfect one, how beautiful you are. You are mine, and I am yours forever. God gives us this morning a beautiful picture of that everlasting faithfulness and love. And God desires that we know that love in our experience and that we live out of it in the joy of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. That I see and you see your value in your union to Christ and His desire toward you. When the church and the saints try to find their value and worth in themselves, what they've accomplished, they lose their influence, they lose their joy, When you seek pleasure, you seek joy in your own pursuits, you'll fail. But the calling of the church and the calling of the saints is forget self. Cast off your own desires and live wholly unto Christ. That doesn't mean that you lose your identity. But on the contrary, you then know and live in the true wonder of your identity. Your identity not as a fallen, sinful individual but as a new creature in Christ, redeemed, delivered, and sat for eternal bliss with Him. As the church serves Christ, preaches His Word, 
seeks His will. The church knows the joy and lives in the wonder of the freedom that Christ has purchased for her. And so, beloved, we come to the table of the Lord this morning with this glorious confession on our lips. I am my beloved, and His desire is toward me. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the wonder of Thy love and Thy goodness. We give thanks as we stand in awe that Thou hast set Thy love upon us and that Thou art pleased to see in us a value and a worth that will be preserved to all eternity. Lord, strengthen our faith and cause that we might, through the sacrament, grow in our knowledge and wonder of that union. Amen.